I remember exactly where I was sitting, how it struck me, and my reaction was, okay, this tiny habits thing, this quirky little thing I've been doing, needs to not just be, you know, BJ's side research project. I need to bring this out in a bigger way because then I started reading people's emails differently and I understood that this was really common. People self-trash talk all the time. They, they beat themselves up. And I think it's the first paragraph in my book where I say, that's not helping you and it's not your fault. And this book's about helping you do it in a way that you feel good. And shame and self-trash talk has no role in the best way to transform your life. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is about untying the mystery of knots. You might not know this, but a bizarre corner of the world of mathematics is around something called knot theory. And we've been trying for more than 100 years to put math behind knots. And it turns out it's really hard to predict whether or not will hold. And it's driven of strange type of mathematician nuts. And a recent breakthrough just happened at MIT, where mathematicians studied color-changing fibers that revealed where there's more or less strain in a knot. And for the first time ever, we actually know things about knots that we never did throughout all of history. This is one of those examples where we know how to tie cargo on a ship, and we have since the time of Vikings. Yet we didn't know why it worked. So think about your health. If you knew how to get an outcome that you wanted, but you didn't know why it worked, could you still use that knowledge to get an outcome? Well, if so, great. But there's great value in understanding how and why something works. But what's most important is understanding that it works. And we have a history in science of saying that can't be, therefore it isn't. In fact, every interesting phenomena that has ever been discovered, someone has said that about. And so you observe something and go, that observation can't be real because I didn't see it first. And it can't work based on the model that I have now. And we are at this amazing time where we have more data and more ability to observe people and see things and see what's actually real and how it works to untangle the, the fibers of reality, whether they're tied in a knot or not. And this little discovery just illustrates, wow, how is it we could tie knots without knowing how they worked? Well, how is it you might live to 180 without knowing everything? I'm pretty sure you can do it. And I'm hoping that you're joining me in that. In fact, I hope you beat me and that you live longer than I do. That would be a win for both of us. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. 
There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Now, today's episode is not about math, it's not about knots, and it's not about living a long time. It's not even about MIT color-changing fibers. You thought you had me on this one, didn't you? It is, however, about cracking the code on a fundamental part of how we as human beings work. And I don't mean our cellular biology. I'm talking about habit formation and how we actually form new habits. Behavior scientist B.J. Fogg, Ph.D., founded the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University and is the leading scientific authority on habits. And he's got a behavior model that I found really helpful. It's easy to learn and easy to apply to everything that you do in life, and it doesn't rely on willpower. If you've read any of my books, you understand. In fact, even if you follow me on social, you've seen a study that I recently posted I posited that willpower was based on mitochondrial function, and now it's actually been proven. So you will run out of willpower if you run out of energy. And if you have a habit from BJ, you actually won't have to worry about that. And BJ says behavior happens when three elements come together at the same moment. It's motivation, ability, and a prompt. So on the show today, I've asked BJ if he will teach you how to make habits that last. And we're going to share some really interesting info about what his habits have done to my life, and I'm going to ask him about his habits, which he doesn't even know I'm going to do. BJ, welcome to the show. <laughs> Dave, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, the other reason you're on the show right now is that you just wrote a book. And uh-huh. tell me about your book as we get going, because people who don't know about your work are going to want to read your book, because well, once yeah. I tell you what it did for my wife, especially, they're all going to want to read Well, the title is Tiny Habits. And in this book, which, oh, I bring together almost 20 years of research, I explain a specific method for creating habits, the tiny habits method that makes uh, the building of habits really easy and fast. But I also share a broader set of models and methods. And together, I call that behavior design. So behavior design is about designing any kind of behavior you want in yourself or your customers or others. So, and my lab at Stanford is called the Behavior Design Lab. So the book does two things at once. It defines what behavior design is and gives the models and methods of behavior design. And then more specifically, it walks people through step-by-step tiny habits so people can create habits quickly and easily. One of the things that made me want to have you on this show, I mean, we've known each other for a while, uh, but I saw you lecture at Michael Fishman's Consumer Health Summit. This is a, mm-hmm. a group for uh, founders and, and leaders in the health uh, information industry, whatever you want to call it, people who are out there helping the health of millions of people. And you came in and you taught this room full of, of world changers how to make habits. But your lecture style is, is like, wow, this guy knows how to teach. And if you know how to teach, <laughs> you know how to write. Uh, and so when I did get an opportunity to open your book and read it, I'm like, oh, this is actually something that I can put to work. Not that I can't put a PubMed reference to work. I can, but it's work. And like you said, yeah. willpower is a, it's like a speed bump. It's, it's an inhibitor. Uh, so thank you for putting it that way because I did something sneaky. 
I I left your book out where uh, my wife, Dr. Lana, uh, could read it. Okay. And I, I'm like the luckiest guy ever because I could see all the books from you know, most of the books in the space. They arrive at my house before, uh, you know, before they get published. And so a few days later, I see uh, uh, Lana and she's at the blender in the morning and she's making either a bulletproof coffee or a bulletproof matcha. She does both. Uh, and she's holding the lid on the blender so that it won't, uh, uh, so that it won't hit the ceiling, which is a, a, a known problem if you don't have a blender with a vent. <laughs> uh, but while she's doing it, she's doing squats, like full nice. on squats. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she said, well, I just read the book on habits and I realized I could do this and I needed something to trigger me. I needed my cue. And so that's what I'm going to do. So every time I'm at the blender, I'm going to do squats. And to this day, she does squats at the blender. And I will tell you, after two weeks of doing that, like her pants fit a little differently. Like it's very noticeable. So PJ, <laughs> thank you for my wife's butt. I, I just, I got to say it works. Okay. Well, that is one of the most unique success stories I've ever heard. Congratulations to the both of you. <laughs> but yeah, isn't that great? I mean, certainly, and that's what I would actually call a meanwhile habit. It's like you have this little moment where you, this period of time, where you could do something useful, whether it's squats or push-ups or three calming breaths. And that's a great story, Dave. Thanks for sharing that. Can I share that in public? Uh, sure. <laughs> I, although if, if everyone walks around looking at my wife's butt, she's going to wonder what's going on. I'm just going to say it's because you've got a good one. Anyhow, I'm not going to tell her about this. <laughs> she listens to the show, though, so she'll hear this and probably slap me later. You know, it's what what's... What surprises so many people, and I bet, you know, I'm a listener of this podcast, and I'm assuming a lot of people are like me, where we try to optimize, we're high performance, we ha we've had a lot of successes, but we still try to do better and better all the time. What surprises people is how much, how effective the right tiny changes can be. So if you pick the right tiny change, you can wire it in quickly, if you follow the method, you can have a big outcome from that. And that is, I can't say like it's magic because I'm a scientist and so I don't use those words, but it really is surprising to people um, that how quickly you can form habits and there are certain habits that have this transformative impact on you. In the book, there's one habit, there's only one habit in the entire book that I say, do this habit. Otherwise the book's about create any habit you want, here's how. The one habit I suggest for everybody early on, I call the Maui habit. It goes like this. After your feet touch the floor in the morning when you're getting out of bed, say, it's going to be a great day. Just those seven words. And by saying that, first thing in the morning, it starts your day and upward trajectory. And it's one of those, what does it take, three or four seconds that can have a really big impact on your day. And even if I don't think it's going to be a great day, because there's some days when I get up and I'm like, man, today's going to be hard or I have all these challenges. I still say it, but I might say it like, it's going to be a great day hmm, somehow. But that still helps. It opens up the possibility it'll be a great day. And what's more often than not, uh, I love numbers. I love tracking. I haven't tracked this in particular, so I can't give the number. But certainly the majority of times, things turn out great that day, even if I was feeling intimidated or unsure about how things would go. So that's the one habit in the book I prescribe. Otherwise, it's a book about 
how do you systematically pick the right habits for yourself and wire them into your life, anything that you want. Uh, and here's a systematic way. You don't have to guess. You actually studied something called behavior design. Yeah. And, and this is 20, 20 years ago or so. Uh, you, you started looking at the psychology of user experience and how you can use computers to make people do things or persuade them to do things. How did that, I'm going to call that dark. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 there's an ethics idea, and you did write an ethics paper on that. Thank you. The first ever ethics paper about, hey, is it ethical to use computers to, you know, yeah. basically manipulate people? Um, but how how much of what you just shared came from that kind of dark history of behavior design? I mean, it doesn't have to be dark, yeah. but like, it's how do you influence people? And that means how do you control people? So, yeah. so you turn it around to self-control. How related is this advice to what you learned from tweaking others? Definitely, definitely a connection. So in the mid-90s, I ran a series of true experiments, laboratory experiments, exploring how computers can influence attitudes and behaviors. And at the time, it was considered crazy, you know, because computers were used for storing data and calculating things, and that was it. Uh, but I anticipated it'd be used for other things, and I wanted to study it to understand it. And yes, computers can influence your attitudes and your behaviors. At a certain point, I named it persuasive technology. And I wrote a book, a different kind of book about here's persuasive technology, here are the potentials, here are the dark sides. And that connected me to really looking at what would work in everyday tech products and the pattern that emerged. So this was after my doctorate and as I was running my lab at Stanford. The overwhelming pattern, Dave, was everything that worked and went big was super, super simple. So in the era of Yahoo and AltaVista and these crazy <laughs> landing pages to search, here comes Google with a teeny little box. And everybody thought that was like ridiculous. Well, guess what? Super simple at one. In the landscape of all these ways to publish online, here comes Twitter. Oh, my gosh, 140 characters. People, in fact, TechCrunch called it idiotic. Guess what? Twitter takes off. The pattern was simplicity changes behavior. And nobody was really calling it out. I was. Then when my lab's interest changed away from technology, this would have been about 2008. It's like, you know, we've kind of done our thing with technology. And we've, you know, I made an official uh, testimony to a subcommittee of Congress warning them in 2006, warning them what was coming with persuasive technology, which at the time, nobody cared about, but said, here's what's going to happen. And it did, unfortunately. But my lab's interest shifted, and we became more interested in health habits and human behavior that had nothing to do with technology. And as we went that direction, it's like, well, we're not doing persuasive technology anymore. What do we call what we do? And in, I actually found the email on this, Dave, a couple months ago. We came up with a whole bunch of new lab names, and one of them was the Behavior Design Lab. Now, behavior design was not a thing at the time. Nobody was using that phrase to describe the design of behaviors, but we, yep, that's what we're doing. And so we changed the lab's name to the Behavior Design Lab. And this book, Tiny Habits, is the first, I think, significant rollout of this is what behavior design is. It's a set of methods and it's a set of models. Before this book that just came out, it was piecemeal. You could find some on this website, that website, and so on. But this book, in some ways, is the statement of, 
at least according to, you know, BJ Fogg's lab at Stanford University, this is what behavior design is. Here are the models and here are the methods. And one of those methods is tiny habits. So is it, is the technology thing dark? Sure. And, you know, people have used it for purposes we didn't anticipate. Uh, my lab members and I did a lot of work to highlight the ethics of it and the problems coming. The connection to my work today, I would say, is that is the understanding that simplicity changes behavior and tiny habits is all about making it super easy so you don't have to rely on motivation. Isn't behavior design just another name for consciousness? I, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're basically, uh, if you're doing behaviors that you're not paying attention to that you didn't design, you're unconscious of your behaviors. And if you're paying some damned attention to your behaviors and you're doing things with intention, you are now conscious. That's a good question. Um, I'll answer it this way, at least the way we talk about behavior design. When we coined the phrase uh, in 2010, and then we changed the lab's name in 2011, what we meant was, by behavior design, what we mean is a specific set of models, including the FOG behavior model, and a specific set of methods. And those two together comprise behavior design. Now, since then, a whole bunch of people are calling, are saying behavioral design and behavior design and it's just a new phrase for old ways of changing behavior. That's not what I mean when I talk about behavior design. Um, it, it is a phrase that um, I guess sounds good to people, so they just start using it. Um, but You're saying behavior change is different than behavior design? Yes. Okay, what's the difference? Uh, behavior design, behavior change is the same thing. No, they're not the same thing. Uh, behavior change... Oh my gosh, it's very hard to define that. And there's all sorts of theories and methods and approaches to behavior change. And it goes back a thousand years or more. I mean, way, way back. By behavior design, and when we coined the phrase and when we named the lab, we met a specific set of models and methods. It wasn't just a new name for things that have gone on for decades or for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was, it's this new thing, it's a new way to look at how behavior really works. So you could analyze behavior systematically and you could design for it systematically. But in some ways, people have taken that phrase, maybe we didn't brand it clearly enough in 2010, but they, they've taken it and they're using it in more generic ways. But that's not what we mean by the phrase behavior design. Okay, and you, know, you are in an academic setting and you're gonna have a precise definition and you know, people always will mush precise academic stuff. <laughs> And say things like eat plant foods, not recognizing that eating pine trees is probably a bad idea because they're a plant, <laughs> but they're not food. Who would have thought, right? You know, so you get you get weird behaviors, but at least you've got a pure a purity at the beginning of it. We try now. As a as a pure academic person, do you ever worry that people might use tiny habits to enforce habits that they think are good for them but aren't good for them? Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and Dave, let me, so I, I don't see myself as a pure academic person. I have a foot at Stanford and a foot in industry. And I it's think, a fair point. You're, you're hands and, on. And, yeah. and, and I love the balance. And my work all has to be practical. It has to have impact. Life's too short not to do something like that. Um, to your question, you know, uh, the behavior model, you know, that's a way of thinking about behavior that uh, is powerful. And tiny habits is a way of creating habits quickly. And the way people use and apply those things, you know, I try to promote the good uses of it, but I don't have a 
complete control over who accesses it or how they do it. And certainly people could use the tiny habits method to wire in habits that aren't so healthy for them. There was a time in my own life, Dave, when I thought popcorn was a healthy snack for me. I, I, I didn't, I thought it was healthy for me. And so I was trying to do the right thing and, and had a popcorn habit that became a popcorn addiction. And had, I know, I know people are laughing at me. You're laughing at me, but uh, from my perspective, it got to be a serious problem, but I thought it was healthy. And then later, and now it's very, very clear to me what the problem was, but you know, so you can wire in habits that you think are healthy, but they end up not being. One of the most interesting classes I've ever taken was a class called religion and violence. In this class, we looked at, uh, all of the religious movements that turned violent. Uh, so you know, mm. Jim Jones and you know various groups, terror groups, and we actually listened to the lectures from their leaders. And my assumption there was, you know, these people are all a bunch of you know, loony pants. And, and the rabbinical scholar teaching the class was like, uh, no, these people all have bad assumptions, but their behaviors yeah. are rational. And it blew my mind. Like, oh my god, these people aren't all crazy. Um, they just have bad assumptions. So a big part of what interests me is okay. I want the power of uh, tiny habits of behavior design, mm -hmm. but it's my job to help design my own behaviors so that they're actually effective. Because when I used the, uh, a very junior version of this, uh, which is probably willpower based. And I said, look, I'm going to work out an hour and a half a day, six days a week. I'm going to take off Sundays and I don't care if I'm sick. I don't care if I have final exams. This is the most important thing. Like I'll, I'll, you know, ditch a date. <laughs> it doesn't matter. This is, I, I will lose this weight. And so I, I, I made it a habit and I, I put everything I had into it. Um, but it was the wrong habit. It actually didn't make me lose any yeah. weight. And it's gonna be 18 months to figure out that, wait, I'm still fat. I'm just strong and fat. Um, what kind of data collection or, or what, what's your thought on this? How do people know yeah. whether their tiny habits that they put in place are actually working for them versus, oh, I, I did a habit. Uh, I'm, I'm like the pigeon who um, you know, will do a random dance to because he thinks it's going to cause a food pellet to come down, but the random dance yeah. isn't actually causing the food pellet. How, how do we protect yeah. ourselves? Dave, this is what I love about your work, your books, and the guidance you give on podcasts with your experts and so on. So yes, I'm an expert on how human behavior works and how to create habits, but what habits you actually create, that requires subject matter expertise. And so I don't pretend to be the subject matter expert on like, here are the health habits that are effective. I mean, that comes from science and from research of other kinds of scientists. And I'm always on the lookout for what should I be? I, I know how to create habits. I can create them fast. But yeah, I'm in the same position as others. Like, what are the habits I should be doing? And I've been there where I thought, oh, this non-fat yogurt with sweetener is healthy for me totally. and things like that where you're like working so hard to be healthy but you're actually doing the wrong thing and your work and the guidance you give people i think i know it's affected my habits in my life i mean so yes i use uh brain octane and my coffee i I wear true dark glasses in the evening. The, the tiny <laughs> That's habit. Awesome. I mean, I mean the brain. Those are my habits, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the brain octane's piece of cake, right? To do yeah. the true darks. The way it works for me is, in tiny habits, you create what I call a recipe, and you find where it fits naturally in your routine. And the recipe has uh, there's a phrase, 
And mine is after I turn on the first light at night, I will put on my true dark glasses. So I know exactly when I'm doing it. So as soon as I turn on any light in the evening, that becomes my prompt or my cue to then put on my true darks. And that's Are what you I just do. saying this because you're on the show or do you actually do that? No, I do. You know how many pair of true darks I have, Dave? And I give them away as gifts. No, I, I'm <laughs> okay. I, um, I didn't realize that. That's yeah, awesome. <laughs> I, I travel with them. I have two different pair with me here, and yeah, I have them like All <laughs> in over the various place. parts of the house. And so <laughs> that, and then the vibe plate. I have a home in California, a home in Maui, and I got a vibe plate in California. Man, getting it to Maui, Dave, was tough. Oh, this I is the bulletproof, e- the forty-five pound one that we make. Yeah, okay. I almost emailed you because I was they couldn't ship it. I had to ship it to California and have my team then ship it. But what I do before I go surfing in the mornings in Maui because I want to warm up and not get hurt out in the waves. I surf every morning, so I do certain kinds of stretches and movements uh, on the vibe plate right there in Maui before I go out. And it's just part of my morning routine. So thank you for creating those products because I have these solid habits that I believe help me get better sleep and perform better. And in case of plate, not get injured and also recover thanks to you. So even though I'm a behavior change expert, I look to you and others to tell me what are the behaviors? What are the habits that are going to make me happier and healthier and live longer? Do you add in a measurement step? I mean, you have... You have your model in tiny habits. You know, behavior equals motivation uh, times ability or plus ability plus prompt. So you know, BMAP. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I understand the motivation. You want to get better sleep, right? And then you figured out your prompt. When the light switch turns on, it's like a little switch for you as well. And the ability is you have to have a pair of glasses around. Um, right. But I mean, are you measuring your sleep to see if it actually worked? And that's just a, an easy example. But oh. for your other habits, like, like how many of them do you yeah. track? Well, 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 I have. For me, let's take, uh, there was a device, and I won't mention the brand name. Uh, let's take it out surfing. I got really curious, how far do I surf every morning? Okay. So I, I wore a, uh, a device that tracked how far you go, and they actually had a mode for surfing. And I did that for, oh, a couple of weeks and found that I surf about two miles every morning. Wow. Um, and what it did for me, Dave, is it took the fun out of surfing. Yeah. I was more interested about, am I keeping pace? Where am I? And it really changed surfing from being this spirit, I'll just say it, a spiritual experience of connecting with nature and the power of nature and learning. I mean, there's scary times and there's beautiful times when you see sea creatures. So tracking that turned out to be a bad idea for me. So I stopped. I have tracked my sleep, but I haven't done a careful study of me wearing true darks and my sleep quality versus not, because I'll just be honest. Uh, I believe you and your research and your suggestions, and it's not that hard to put on the true darks. <laughs> and, okay. and, and the thing that wires in a habit, and this relates to true darks, the thing that wires a habit in is not repetition. People that say that haven't read the research carefully or they're misleading you. It's the emotion you feel when you do the behavior. And so for me, and I can't say this works for everybody, but for me, when I put on the true darks, I feel like I'm putting on, uh, like I get a superpower. Like I'm protected from the fridge light. I'm protected from the computer screen. 
And that sense of I'm protecting myself and maintaining uh, my ability to sleep well is an emotional experience when I put them on. And then early on when I started using the True Darks, you gave me a pair a long time ago. I think your first version. Oh, that must have been at a conference. I think when they first came out, I gave them away at Consumer Health Summit. I don't see where you got them because I I don't remember giving them to you. Okay, cool. Yeah, and what I felt when I first wore them was this calming. Now, that might have just been me making that up in my brain, but it doesn't matter. We see that the 40 years of Zen brain scan stuff. (laughs) In most people, that's a real effect. Yeah. Yeah, so a real effect. So it's like, oh, I feel calmer. So that it's an emotion that happens as you do the behavior. So that habit wired in for me very quickly. Now, when I don't have them, so let's say I go out to dinner with friends and I don't bring, I have your, your newer true darts that are super kind of cool, groovy looking aviator. Right. right? <laughs> and I love wearing those out because it looks sort of, I don't know. Uh, I like wearing them. It's kind of, it's interesting. Um, if I go out to dinner with friends and I forget them, I feel like it's kryptonite. It's like, oh, no, that's going to happen to my sleep tonight. So it really has wired into my life. And um, I think it's a great habit to have. And it's really not that hard to form. So so that's an example of, of a habit there. And you're saying you're actually just you're relying on an emotional field. You like doing the habit. Has, does it have a good association? Does it feel good? If so, that's good. So you're running the risk that you might be wearing glasses that don't work because you haven't validated it, but the act of validating it removes the joy and who cares because you like wearing them. Well, in some cases, I think for surfing it did. Now, if I had an easy way to do a controlled study of myself wearing them versus not and track it, sure, I'd do it. Um, But I'm... I have a lot of other things to do. Well, that's the whole thing. Like you only track things that are worth tracking, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Now... How would I go about uh, about doing something like that? Like, like, how do I bring out that sense of of power or joy or wh- whatever the thing is that you describe as as the the emotional motivator? What? How how do you turn that on? That's oh my gosh! This is where in my book, I'm sure this is going to upset many people and invite criticisms because it's so different. I have a chapter I entitled it "Emotions Create Habits." Be really clear. Emotions create habits. And what you can do is you can actually hack your emotion through a technique that I call celebration. And celebration is anything you do that helps you feel immediately successful. Um, for a lot of people, doing a fist pump like Tiger Woods and saying, awesome, helps you feel successful. Other people, it's like raising your arms in victory. Uh, other people do a little dance. Some people literally give themselves a high five. Lana totally did the fist pump, by the way, after her her blender thing. Yeah, she she okay, would actually good. do that. I was laughing at her. <laughs> the way to find what works for you is this. Well, in Tiny Habits, I give a hundred different celebrations, so you can go there and look at the list and try them. But uh, one way is to imagine that your favorite team's in the Super Bowl. And in the last five seconds, they're behind. In the last five seconds, they score and they win. What do you do at that moment? That then tells you what a natural celebration is for you. So whatever you did, then you can bring that in. And when you do a behavior that you want to become a habit, immediately after the behavior, while you're doing it, do the celebration. Fire off that positive emotion. That's what makes your brain take note. It's like, whoa, what just happened? I want to do that again. So you're 
deliberately firing off a positive emotion in order to hack your brain and wire in the habit. Now, this to a lot of people sounds wacky. I don't think it will be in five or 10 years, but right now this is new and nobody's ever like advocated that you do this. Uh, but what I found, and I loved what you talked about with the knot, and there's some things we know that works, we don't know why it works. That's what happened with me in celebration. I found that looking in the mirror when I was flossing and I said victory, like it was a time in my life, Dave, when I was playing around with the habits and my life was just, oh my gosh, a startup was failing. I was doing a huge conference at Stanford. I had a nephew that died from a drug overdose. My life was unraveling. And I thought, okay, floss one tooth. And I looked in the mirror and I would think everything else today could be terrible. This would be like 2010. Everything else could be terrible, but I got one thing done. You did one thing right today, BJ, victory. And doing that, you know, I didn't read studies. I just did it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that had an impact. So I, I developed it. And then I started teaching it to others and it worked for them as well. And I didn't know the brain chemistry or why it worked. I just knew it worked. Later, I put the other pieces together. This is why it works. But the hack of celebration came first before understanding the mechanism of why it worked. That that makes a lot of sense. And so people read the book uh, and go through and say, all right, here's the motivating uh, reward for me. Sort of that, that sense. Yeah. So you're consciously triggering an emotion. Yes. And there's a name to that emotion now. Um, the, this emotion of internal success has not been named. And so in the book, I give it a name and I call it shine. Nice. So that's shine is now the name of the emotion. When you feel successful, when you see you ace an exam and you feel awesome, that's shine. When you make that awesome three point shot, I did it. That's shine. And so now there's a name for it. And that's the emotion that in tiny habits, you learn to hack to wire in the habit. And what's exciting about that to me is a lot of things, but one is, now you know what you're shooting for, for wiring and habits, but also to help your spouse, your kids, your colleagues, the people around you, wire and habits, help them feel shine. And there's other ripple effects from feeling shine, but one of the things in what you're doing here is you're deliberately wiring in the habit. Interesting. Now, the, the side of me that's a, more of a biochemist looking at this going, how about when I do something good, I just give myself one milligram of nicotine to get that dopamine level really high? <laughs> Could work. I've not tested it. What we did <laughs> test, what we did test um, was like little chocolate pellets and things like that. Oh yeah, that. okay. How'd that work? That's similar. But not like in an experiment, just goofing around in my lab. Like every time I take an email out of my inbox, I'll eat this little chocolate pellet, right? And the the thing about there are different emotions and there's different ways there's different emo emotions that can uh, wire in habits and different what you might say rewards I don't use that term because it's become so ambiguous but that's what it is technically a reward um, but the the specific emotion of shine is something that's accessible to everybody you don't have to be able to like you know get ahead of nicotine or other things. If you can find the celebrations or a set of celebrations that work for you, then you can fire that off at any moment. And so it is this widely available technique and you don't have to have any little chocolate pellets or any sophisticated equipment. You just have to figure out what works for you. Now, the more intense the 
feeling, the more intense the emotion, the faster the habit wires in. To the point that if you do a behavior and you have a very strong, immediate, positive emotion, I call that an instant habit. It can be yeah. that from then on, you never consider options. What, like what's, I, an, I, what's an example of that? Um, I did some nonprofit work in um, Nashville, and it went really well, and I felt like, great, I'm going to go get a guitar to commemorate <laughs> this work in Nashville. And I got this cool guitar at this great guitar store, brought it home, and when I played the guitar the first time, I was like, oh, my gosh, I sound so good. Now, it wasn't me. It was the guitar. But my emotional response to it was like, this guitar gives me superpowers. And I already had four or five other guitars on the wall. From that point forward, once I played the Nashville guitar, I didn't go back to the other guitars. Day two, oh, I have five guitars, six guitars I can choose from. Which one do I pick? The Nashville guitar, the Nashville guitar. So the one first experience where I played it, I felt super successful. I felt like it gave me superpowers. Why would I go back to any other guitar? So that was a one and done, the habit wired in. I, and the habit is something you do. It's the opposite of a choice or a decision. Okay. You just do an action without thinking about it very much. You know, day two, I walk in to practice guitar. I just reach for the Nashville guitar. I'm not considering the other options. This is one of the reasons that if people are going to start journaling, like, look, go out and buy yourself a $100 pen if that's what it takes. Yeah. If, yeah. if you enjoy the weight of a pen and the way the ink flows on the paper or you know, do you want a, a cheap, crappy piece of paper or do you want you know crisp... Yeah. linen. Some of those feel really good to some people and other people just don't care. But if you're one of those people, yeah, like, like make it, make it a memorable experience. Otherwise you don't do it. Yeah. Right. Right on. You know, and it's the often, so I, I teach a lot of product innovators. They come to my two day boot camp, which is not about helping them personally. It's helping them understand how to design for behavior and engagement and so on. And one of the big things is the first time somebody uses your product or service, that's a huge opportunity. And if you don't get it right, if you frustrate them or if you make them feel stupid, they're probably not going to use it again. But if the first time, if you feel, if they feel like you've given them a superpower, if you've helped them feel successful in a way that's like, wow, they're going to keep using your product or service. Uh, it makes so much sense. You, you want that immediate reward. Yeah. yeah. We talked about BMAP. We talked about the behavior itself, how you choose the good behavior. Hopefully, you have a good expert you're following. Um, the motivation we talked about. Now, what about ability? That's a part of the equation in tiny habits. Do you have to be trained in it, or, or what does the ability mean? Oh, yeah. So I have two models for ability. One of them defines what ability is, and there's five components. And I describe it as a chain model. There's five links in the chain. And if any one of them is broken you don't have the ability. And the links are, for any given behavior, how much time does it take? How much money does it take? How much thinking or mental effort? How much physical effort? And the fifth one is a little harder to grasp is, does it fit into your routine? So for any given behavior, say like shopping at the farm market every Saturday morning, well, do you have the time to do it? Do you have the money? Do you have the mental capacity? Do you have the physical capacity? And it doesn't fit in your routine. If any one of those, like if you can't afford the farm market, then you don't have the ability to, 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 to shop at the farm market. Or uh, maybe you don't have the time. So that's one way to think about ability. And when you're troubleshooting a behavior, if a behavior is not happening and you get to the step where you say, well, how do I make it easier? 
you try to figure out what's your weakest link. Oh, I have to think too much to do this behavior. Well, then that's a signal you may need to skill up so you could do it without thinking so much. So that's one, one model is really defining what ability is. The other model is if you want to make something easier to do, you have three options. One is you can train yourself. So if you want to cook healthy, um, you know, healthy, fresh produce in the evenings, you can take lessons and train yourself. So you skill up so it becomes easier. In that case, you're changing yourself. You're changing the person. Next, you can modify the context or environment. You can get tools and resources, get cookbook, get steamers, get knives. Now, that's not changing your skill, but it's putting tools in your environment that make it easier. The third and final way to make something easier is to take the action and scale it back. So instead of cooking a whole healthy dinner, maybe you just do one dish. Instead of flossing all your teeth, just one tooth. Instead of 20 push-ups, maybe two. Okay. So when you come to making it something easier to do, you have those three options, and that's all you have. And it will always fit into one of those. And sometimes you do both at once. Okay, so there's your ability, and those yes. are... Those are straightforward when you explain them uh, the way you might have explained them a hundred times in lectures. Well, but what's, ex- I, you know, I, and I kind of know it because I've taught it a lot, but Dave, figuring out those models took years yeah. and like, okay, what's the next piece? And, and, but then when it all clicks, it's like a puzzle. It's like, oh, there it is. That's it, you know? And I'm happy to share it, but I have to confess, it takes years to take something that's quite complicated like ability and then create a model that is parsimonious uh, and actionable. And that's in some ways why it took almost 20 years of research pulling together to now create tiny habits. Because it's not like you discover everything instantly. It's piece by piece. It's, it, it's really interesting uh, exactly what you're saying. Uh, you study something for long enough and you realize there's a framework and there's an order to the madness. And you tease mm-hmm. it out and then you write it down mm-hmm. and then it looks uh, kind of obvious. <laughs> and then like people look at the behavior model and they're like, that's obvious. And like, no, this hasn't been obvious for thousands of years. But once you see it, it's like an answer to a riddle. Yeah. It's like, there it is. How much of your day do you spend on habits? So you talk about you wake up before mm. your feet hit the ground or as they're hitting the ground. As they hit the ground. Okay. That's, that's your Maui habit. Wake up. Yeah. Wake up, get going. You know, mornings are a great time to be highly ridden. You know that. Other people have talked about that. That's not a huge surprise. But it turns out that mornings are the easiest place to create new habits. In the tiny habits method, you look for a routine that you can anchor the new habit to. I call it anchoring. And so because you have more routines in the morning, it actually turns out that it's easier to create habits in the morning. Uh, So I have a ton of morning habits. One of them is... Um, and in my life, I, well, I look at habits as not just you set it and forget it. That's an evolving thing. The, the best analogy, and I talk about this a little bit in Tiny Habits, is to look at your set of habits like a garden with all these different shrubs and plants and trees. And each one is a different habit. And you want to find plant the right plant in the right spot. So you want to put the right habit in the right spot in your day. But you also want to evolve it over time. You don't always want your garden to look the same. So in my own life, what I have a habit of doing, both in Maui and in California, I can't do it in hotels because it annoys people. But first thing in the morning, you know, after I take care of uh, the biological functions and even before coffee, 
I sit down in the dark and I play a tenor recorder. So it's like a flute. And for me, that is both a combo of like meditation and creating music. It's hard to describe. And I love that habit. I've been doing that for two or three years of just, I have this time when nobody's bugging me and I'm usually sitting in the dark because it's early and I just play the flute and I love that habit. One of these days when that no longer serves me, I'll let that habit go and I'll put something else in its spot. But for now, that's working well for me. So I keep going. You're the second person on the show to mention that. The other one was was Frank Zane, um, mm. like a world champion, Mr. Olympia bodybuilder, uh, who's now late sixties or seventies, I, I think. You know, he's 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 definitely you know past his prime uh, as a as a bodybuilder, but still just incredibly active mind and very evolved person on the podcast. It really not what you'd expect from you know a, the the stereotypical yeah. you know I spend two hours a day in the gym guy. Uh, but he he was all about uh, playing the flute. <laughs> so really? It's funny that that's come up on the show twice now because I wouldn't have predicted that. You know, I think there is something powerful about playing instruments um, in just so many ways. And so, you know, so that's a habit. And I'm always playing around with my habits and changing things up. And I think, you know, I haven't done research on is that beneficial or not, but I've coached over 40,000 people personally in habits since starting in 2011. So I know a lot about what works and what doesn't. And my sense is that looking at your landscape of habits is something that you design. Yes. If you don't design it, then weeds crop up. That's like bad habits. And that you evolve over time. When something no longer serves you, remove it. And then you have spot for something else that is more beneficial to you at that point in your life. I really like that because one of the things that happens to me, I have way more technology for upgrading the human mm. biology than I have time to use. And so I, I looked at this thing and said, all right, how do I solve this problem? I, I can say I've got 45 minutes in the morning. I'm going to put it on the calendar and I'm going to go do something. But th- then it's not actually a habit because it's a decision. Because I got to decide what to do, right? And then that creates resistance and you got to think about it yeah. and all that. Yeah. Uh, and some things just aren't, they, they aren't good for that. Like let's take uh, high intensity interval training. Oh, my habit is I'll do that every morning. You know what's going to happen? You're going to break yourself because you don't get enough yeah. recovery. You need to do that you know, every two, three days. And in fact, most people fail at exercise because I'm going to make a habit of exercising every morning and then they overtrain. Is there a way to do a habit every other day, once a week? It's, it's a great question. Every other day is hard. If you already have something you do every other day, like students go to class Monday, Wednesday, Friday, then yes. After I leave my biology 101 class, which is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'll go to the gym. But for most of us, we really don't have things that happen every other day. So that tends to be a kind of habit that's hard. Weekly habits are, if you have weekly routines that you can attach them to, then they get, yes, you can do that. Now, there is a kind of habit, Dave, where you go to the gym every day. You go as a habit. But once you're there, you decide what you do. You see what I'm saying? So the going to the gym, you don't make a decision. You always go. But then once you're there, you're like, what do I do today? So that becomes a decision and deliberate. And I think that's a good way to go. For example, when I go out to the waves every morning, 
you know, the surf reports are not accurate, but I go out, I don't think about it. Frankly, surfing is kind of an addiction for me and others. Uh, I find, but I go out and then I look at the waves and I evaluate, okay, what am I going to wear? What is going to be my thin setup and so on. So I'm making a decision once I get there, but the going out to where I surf is a habit, rock solid. Okay. I, I get it. So you, you can really carefully target the habit. And a lot of people have talked about that. I just, I promise I'm going to get myself to the gym. Not that I'm going to work out, but when I'm there, I usually work out. There. Yeah. How important is avoidance of pain, avoidance of shame, uh, and things like that as uh, in terms of habit habit formation? Uh, for instance, mm. um, I had uh, Manish Sethian a long time ago who has the yeah. tough lock, right? Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you guys did a conference, or he was part of a conference with you and Michael Fishman years ago or something. Yeah, maybe. well, t- tonight Ramit and I are actually here at 92nd Street. Why? So I'll be seeing Ramit in a couple hours. Ramit no is Manish's kidding. brother. Yeah, and yeah. Manish is in Bali right now. I'm following on Instagram. Oh, well, yeah. tell Ramit that I said hi as well. <laughs> I will too. Uh, <laughs> that's so funny. Well, so th- this device, for people who haven't heard of it, um, it, it's kind of obscure. Yeah, but what it does is when you do something you don't like, it creates a, yeah. a little micro shock, like like your mother would t- tell you use a rubber band to shock yourself. And it turns out it's remarkably effective for quitting smoking and some other stuff like yeah. that. But the, the broader question is, um, Manish is an odd guy, and I say that as his friend, uh, but he's all about, you know, oh, I, I wanted to avoid pain, so I made almost all of my habit formation. You know, I, he hired someone from Craigslist to slap him when he would use yeah. Facebook, so he stopped using Facebook. Okay, that's maybe pathological. But in terms of the broader question, when, in tiny habits, you're so positive. Every time you every time you get a new habit, you know, say hooray and, you know, yeah. give yourself a pat on the back. And he's like, every time you don't do a bad habit, you know, punch yourself Just in the so. face, right? And, yeah. <laughs> so is there room in the middle or is like one Man- approach? Manish is great. When, when he was early, early on in doing that, he came to me. It's like, wow, Manish, that's whack. I'm not going to do it. There's no yeah. way I can be associated with like shocking people. <laughs> but it fits your brand and it fits who you are. And you're going to get tons of free publicity. So, you know, go down. Yeah. Um, I've not studied that. What I know is that you can create these habits quickly and readily by feeling good. Now, once the habit's wired in, you don't have to celebrate anymore. I mean, celebration, the emotion is the fixer. So once it's wired in, the habit's wired in. I mean, it doesn't hurt you to celebrate. Now, to shock yourself to stop a habit, actually, stopping habits is much more complicated than creating them. And I haven't seen... Manish's data, I haven't done research on it, so I don't want to make any statements around it. But, you know, for some people it works. Um, My approach and a big theme in my book, Tiny Habits, is you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. So I'm not really talking about shocking yourself, but I am talking about, you know, don't self-trash talk. Don't beat yourself up. Don't blame yourself when your change efforts don't work. If they don't work, you're probably taking an approach that's an old-fashioned approach, and it's not your fault. It's you, you just haven't been given the right approach yet. And that just that notion, Dave, of, wow, you mean I did X, Y, and Z for so many years and didn't work, and it's not my fault? No, it's not your fault. You just hadn't been given the right way to do it yet. And the best way to do it is by feeling good, not by feeling bad. That's actually... Uh, relaxing uh, to hear that, even though I, I already know that it's true. I spent so much time in, in that building habits to lose weight. 
And the habit is I'm going to order the salad with no dressing and no chicken. And I'm mm-hmm. going to work out excessively. And, and you know, when it doesn't work, like, oh, my habits don't work. So then you, you feel feel bad. Maybe I need more habits and all, but it turns out I, uh, you know, I, it, it really wasn't my fault and that I was doing it, but it wasn't working. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, I, and it was four months in. So I started teaching tiny habits publicly in 2011. People would sign up and I would coach them through email Two, 300 people a week. It adds up probably four to 5,000 people in teaching. And a woman wrote me on a Wednesday, it's five day program said, BJ, you have now helped me see I've endured a lifetime of self trash talk. And thanks to you and your celebration, I'm changing that now. And it's, I forgot her exact words, but it's basically, I now see a potential in myself I never imagined. And that day, that email was significant. I remember exactly where I was sitting, how it struck me. And my reaction was, okay, this tiny habits thing, this quirky little thing I've been doing needs to not just be, you know, BJ's side research project. I need to bring this out in a bigger way because then I started reading people's emails differently and I understood that this was really common. People self-trash talk all the time. They, they beat themselves up. And I think it's the first paragraph in my book where I say, that's not helping you and it's not your fault. And this book's about helping you do it in a way that you feel good. And shame and self-trash talk has no role in the best way to transform your life. Very, very well said. And it's one of the many reasons I think Tiny Habits is one of those those books. And the, the daily habits are the ones that are, are most mm-hmm. important. And it's, you know, eat more of the good stuff, uh, avoid the stuff that is bad for you, take your supplements, you know, brush your teeth, floss, <laughs> uh, move every day. Those are all programmable habits. Uh, meditate for a few minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those are highly, highly doable uh, and I think your methodology to make it so instead of deciding to do them, you just sort of do them. It does something that is not borne out by any study that I can think of, except the one I mentioned at the beginning, uh, where we talk about how we now know that willpower is a mitochondrial thing. It it mm. comes from them. And my assessment, and I would say what what I know very deeply as a distributed systems, computer system, or a computer scientist type of guy, uh, is that a lot of our unconscious behavior comes from bacterial operating system things mm. repeated lots of times. Uh, it, it's that when you have a habit that doesn't require willpower and doesn't require decision, it conserves energy mm-hmm. in the system. And the energy that's mm-hmm. conserved goes to something. It always mm. does, because that's how biology yeah. works. And it can go to watching Breaking Bad over and over, which is fine. <laughs> um, but it's also going to go towards protein folding. It's going to mm. go towards meditation. It's going to go towards mm. having enough energy to get up and give your seat on the bus uh, to someone who could use it more than you. You know, the, the pregnant woman, the older person. Like it, It's going to give you the energy to be nicer to other people, which I think yeah. we're also wired to do because yeah. bacteria form biofilms. That's why we form mm. communities. Same behavior, bigger scale. Uh, so this is why avoiding waste of willpower is terribly important because it's a biological resource and you might age less quickly if you don't burn your willpower out on crap that doesn't matter. Just saying. (laughs) Nice. That's that's well put. I haven't heard it quite from that perspective. It totally maps with everything I'm seeing on my side. Very nice. Well, BJ, one final question for you. 
I know what this is going to be. <laughs> do you? Do you? <laughs> Ask what, it. Ask what's your away. answer? How long are you going to live, man? I just wrote Superhuman. Oh, it's it's my most successful book so far, highest it. reviewed. Yeah. Uh, have you read it? Uh, I've read parts of it. I mean, okay. I'm, you know how done. the book publicity is. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got the Kindle version. I've got the printed version. Okay. Uh, I know this question is coming. I know what your answer is. I'm super competitive, Dave. Uh, so let's see. What shall I answer? I want to be super useful, make lots of contributions, and I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick 180. I'm with you. Let's go All for right. 180. I, and I think it's possible. And I'm an optimist. I'm 50. What's 56 now? And I just feel like, in some ways, I'm younger than I was 10 years ago. And I have so much to contribute, I think, and help people that I'm super motivated. I can't wait to get to work. And so I just don't see why it's not possible. So if I get the right guidance, I know I can wire in the habits. I yeah. just need to know what the right habits are. So go forth, figure it out. All right. Even all others, tell us. I'll write them down. <laughs> we'll make it real joyful and real simple. And uh, you'll just take a big handful of supplements and uh, do a few <laughs> thousand other things and you'll be good to go. Uh, we'll make it easier over time. Uh, it's still early days, but uh, I'm with you. BJ, your book is Tiny Habits and your website is bjfog.com. Uh, and people can pick up Tiny Habits anywhere that books are sold right now. I know you're at Costco, Including Costco, which is yeah. legit. That's as an author, I've never had a book in Costco. Come on, guys, you carry some bulletproof <laughs> products. You gotta get my book in there if you're yeah, listening. <laughs> uh, and uh, one habit that I'm going to ask everyone listening to put in. This is a very simple habit. It's not daily at all. Every time you finish a book, when you close the page, or you get to that last page on your Kindle or your Audible, uh, the habit is this. Go to Amazon, leave a review for the author. And it yes. doesn't matter if it's a bad review or a good review. It matters to the author, but it should be a truthful yeah. review. But we want data on how we're doing. So if you like to leave a tip at a restaurant, which is probably a habit that you do, do the same thing for an author. Leave us a review. It matters. So pick up Tiny Habits right on. and leave a review after you've read it. I know BJ's going to want to see the review. So will I. And on that note, leave a review for the show too. I appreciate that. Have a beautiful day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.